quick language warning here. Sometimes Alice and I, we have potty mouths and we're working on that. So this is probably best for grown-up listening only. This is Body Shock, a podcast by two newbie parents, me, Alice Fenton, and my co-host Shannon O'Mara. We separate fact from fiction about what having kids does to your body and mind and what you can do about it. Hello, I'm Alice Fenton and I'm here with my co-host Shannon O'Mara. You're listening to Body Shock, the podcast that looks at what happens to the body and mind after you become a parent. Hi, Shan. Alice, hello. So in our last episode called WTF, we asked Dr. Annie Marshall all about random body and mind issues that happen. This week, we're starting to narrow in on certain topics. And now, Alice, you and I have discussed this particular topic many, many, many times before. And I'm still a little shocked at how I, I, I never really thought about it prior to becoming a mum. And then I suddenly became obsessed with it. Sleep. Oh, I know. Yeah. Sleep is a topic that all new parents end up caring truly, madly, deeply about. But let's just completely forget about our babies or toddler sleep for a moment. We spoke to sleep psychologist Dr. Leora Kempler about the best ways to deal with sleep deprivation as a parent. Leora is a super smart cookie and just a great lady who also happens to be a mum of two. In fact, her five-month-old little one joined us in the studio for this episode and happened to take a little nap on my chest. (laughs) It's possibly the cutest thing to ever have taken place in the kindling studio. Uh, And when she wasn't sleeping on Shannon, she was happily rolling around the studio floor. So if you hear some rattling and some cooing, that's what's going on. Let's jump into the interview. So today we're talking to Leora Kempler, who is a sleep psychologist. Good morning. (laughs) Nice to be here today. And not just a sleep psychologist, but a mum of two. True. And she's actually brought her five-month-old into the studio today. (laughs) Yeah, let's hope that she doesn't disrupt too much. Obviously, you can't see her, but let me assure you, she is maybe the cutest thing you've ever seen. She's very lovely, very, very super smiley. You might hear some rattling in the background. Yeah. But anyway, let's let's focus on the task at hand. Um, So, Leora, we're going to talk to you about sleep and what it means, but... What does it mean to be a sleep psychologist? Oh, essentially, it's the title you give yourself when you're a psychologist who specializes in sleep. (laughs) So um, that's what I am. I'm a psychologist and I specialize in people with sleep disorders. Um, That could be anything from insomnia, that's a large proportion of my patients, but also parasomnias like sleepwalking and sleep talking. Some of those are linked to stress. So a psychologist is often someone who will work with them as well. And um, people with sleep disorders tend to have a lot of comorbidities. So they'll often have depression or anxiety on top of, say, insomnia. Um, And if, let's say, you've got sleep apnea and you have to sleep with a mask on your face, that can be really uncomfortable. So then often people will have insomnia as well. So I work with basically just patients with sleep disorders. But in the last maybe five years, um, since I started my PhD, I've found another um, unfortunate group of people who don't sleep, which is mums, and um, uh, often that's due to the baby, and often it's also that they have insomnia on top of that. So my my thesis basically was looking at an intervention to help expectant mums manage sleep with their baby and sleep in the postpartum period better. 
And we actually did find that people who got this program had better sleep at four months in terms of sleep quality and less insomnia than people who didn't get the program. So now I also work with this whole group of people with both babies with sleep difficulties and mums with sleep difficulties that are either caused by that or independent. So the things that you are suggesting that people implement in their lives are not necessarily just related to making the baby sleep. It's things. That oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, um, you know, there's only so much control you can have over a baby as a person at the end of the day um, with very important needs. So, yeah, there's really only so much that you can do. Um, and I think that if you can reset your expectations to be slightly more realistic, you'll probably end up more satisfied with your sleep at the end. Great. Because we, our focus today in this episode is not on baby sleep, it's on parental sleep. Oh, so fantastic. We're talking to the right person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's really good that you say that because a lot of people do have a much bigger focus on the baby's sleep. And I'm often the one to turn around and say, okay, what's happening with you? And it's often quite a different story. The babies get enough attention, guys. This is (laughs) just all about the mums and sometimes the dads Mm -hmm. as well. Mm. Yeah. How much sleep do we actually need? Okay. In general. So sleep, much like anything else, maybe height, you can think of it uh, in comparison to height, um, exists on a beautiful bell curve where most people sit in the middle Um, where they get sort of seven to eight hours of sleep, about seven and a half is great. And you get your really lucky people who can survive quite happily on four or five hours of, maybe five hours of sleep. And you get those other people at the other end of the bell curve that really need 10 hours of sleep. And obviously people in between, but a, a large majority of people will need about seven and a half hours of sleep a night. I might actually add in there that, um, with a new mum, you actually only get about an hour less of sleep, believe it or not, on average in that first postpartum year. But the difficulty is the sleep fragmentation or the sleep disruption from the baby. So that's where the exhaustion and losing your mind comes in. <laughs> it's not actually the shortest sleep. Yeah, I actually, I'm going to jump forward a little bit okay. here because the key thing that I just found amazing when I had a baby is that I, I went for a good six months without having a stretch of sleep longer than three hours. That's just how things played out. And I just was amazed that I was still alive. (laughs) How is this possible? Like I I must be so sleep deprived. How am I still functioning? Should I be driving? All of these different things. How how does that actually affect the body? Like how do we survive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good question. So um, basically the three hour that you mentioned is really common. It's actually probably the best three hours you can get because the way sleep architecture works or sleep staging is that you get most of your deep sleep in the first three hours of the night and then after that it becomes basically like REM sleep and stage two sleep after after those first three hours so if you're getting those first three hours that's really good restorative sleep very good brain rest you can think of there are very few things where I think oh nature's helped us out over here but that's probably one of them and the other one is actually that when you're breastfeeding, you go into deep sleep um, more quickly than if you're not. Thanks, Nature. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, all, that's all they give you, though, <laughs> I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, so in terms of how do you survive, well, the truth is you actually don't perform at your optimum, which is unfortunate but probably very obvious to most people who have experienced it before. But if you're getting, you know, three hours and then another two afterwards – and you've got a new baby, I'd say you're doing pretty well. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Is there any real way to prepare for the lack of sleep in the anticipation of a newborn? And is it true that, I guess, yeah, this is a two-part question, is it true that the third trimester um, insomnia that some people experience, I had it pretty severely. I I was w- waking up and staying awake quite a lot. Is It's a yeah. way of the body preparing. It's pretty awful. Okay, I think that's a lovely way of looking at it. I don't think there's any way I can say for you that that's definitely true. As a psychologist, a lot of my work's in research and that basically means that I'm not going to give you an answer to something that doesn't have a lot of evidence to back it up. And that also means that I can't necessarily provide reasons. But as far as evolution goes, yeah, possibly. The the truth is, though, that when, particularly with your first baby, when you're towards the end of your pregnancy, number one, you're getting up to use the loo a lot more. You're very uncomfortable. With that discomfort, I guess apprehension, anxiety, excitement, all of those emotions that come with expecting a baby. Yeah. So, so with all the emotions that come with having a new baby, it really does sort of make it recipe for insomnia and so yes you do find a large number of women in their third trimester experiencing insomnia whether it prepares you or not for the baby I don't necessarily think very much can the only thing that can really help you is setting your expectations to a realistic place and and that is to know you will be woken frequently you might have to stay awake in the night for a long period of time you might have a half hour 40 minute feeder plus nappy change and reset link you can end up being awake for quite a long time in the middle of the night and knowing that, you know what, people have done this for generations and generations and we've all survived, so this is just part of what our species is supposed to do. And it's not forever, it's for a relatively short That's right, period yeah. of time. I like that thought, though, setting the expectation. Mm. That's a good way to think about, that's a good way to prepare. My expectations were not <laughs> set appropriately, <laughs> I think. And, yeah, I think a lot of it is shock. And I don't know whether you'd agree with this. I'm actually interested to see if you, you do. The idea that if you stress about the amount of sleep you're getting, you actually feel more tired. Yes. Like this, so if you manage to just distract yourself a bit, you can just function better. Yeah, well, that's right, actually. And one of the things we often advise insomnia patients to do is stop telling people how little sleep they've had and constantly provide themselves with excuses to perform poorly. You know, I guess it's the same. You just sort of feel better when you don't allow people to know that you're not feeling great. And don't um, count the hours. I really don't fell into the, the hours, trap of yeah. going... Okay, so I did three hours then, and then I did two. So I've had five hours sleep, so maybe I can function okay. Probably not actually that helpful. Like not just at all. Carry on as though you are well slept, and see how you go. Might be a better approach. Yeah, and you you know what? You actually probably really surprise yourself. Um, I think people, you know, you get a get a good morning walk in, get a bit of sun, you know, see some friends, distract yourself, socialize, stay on your feet. Don't get me wrong, it's it's really hard and you can feel really exhausted, but you can probably cope with less sleep than what you thought you could before you had the baby. Okay, so our next question is <laughs> perhaps hard to measure, but how crazy does lack of sleep actually make parents, men and women. Yeah, I like the way you phrase that. Uh, I think the answer differs for different people, um, particularly because, you know, some people will respond to poor sleep with anger and that can be very difficult, not for them, but for the partner as well to cope with. Other people will, there's high, high associations between poor mood and poor sleep. So, you know, people can get postnatal depression that can be exacerbated by poor sleep um, or just low mood. 
And then I guess the word crazy might be better to refer as forgetting things, leaving the keys in the front door, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Look, it happens a lot. And like I said before, sleep disturbance is associated with cognitive impairments. It does cause cognitive impairments. And so to explain what a cognitive impairment is, that can be something like a slow response, so car accidents. So the automatic response isn't as quick or it could be something like poor memory and memory lapses and, you know, like I said, leaving your keys in the front door. Leora, aside from the the standard tip of sleep when your baby is asleep, what other advice would you offer new parents? Okay, I think the most important thing with that one is to rest when the baby sleeps, not sleep when the baby sleeps. Because as soon as you pressure yourself into sleeping in a very short window of time, Uh, you end up just lying there stressed that you can't sleep and, of course, being much less likely to sleep. Whereas if you see it as, you know what, I'm just going to lie down, rest my body, rest my mind um, and benefit from that, then you might drift off and that's great. And if you don't, well, you're probably still quite happy that you've had a good rest. Um, So rest when the baby sleeps and if you sleep, fantastic. The other thing uh, you can do is have a good morning walk. Uh, getting suppressing your melatonin in the morning, using the morning sun uh, is a nice way to feel more awake during the day. If you really don't have the energy to go for a walk, just sit and have your breakfast in the sun, something that's just outdoors so that you're sort of setting your body clock and you can, and you can make it through the day like that. Uh, the other thing you can do is um, accept help if you're offered help from family or friends. You know, don't, don't feel too proud to accept it. And I think we all feel a bit, we all get a bit guilty doing that. But, you know, most people are actually very happy to take the baby for a little walk and let you have a nap. So if you if you have that opportunity, that's great. I, I think the most important thing really is for parents to be able to identify when they're getting to a point of not coping. And when they get to that point is to do something different. You know, let, let let's enforce something like you know, partner takes the baby in the morning or let's, you know, find a friend who's happy to look after my baby for half an hour and I'll look after your baby for half an hour, you know. As soon as you... Or or get help somewhere, but as soon as you realise that you're not coping, it's really important to just get up and do something about it and Mm. not just plod along and not cope. That's great advice. Now, we sort of covered this because you gave some great tips about, I guess, how to manage sleep deprivation, Is there anything else people can do to avoid getting sick when they're underslept? Because that seems to be a really common thing is just that you're tired. When you are a new parent, it's time to prioritise yourself and your baby, basically. And sleep is a part of your health. So if, if you can get more sleep by sleeping when the baby sleeps, that's a great thing to do. If sleep isn't an option, you know, make sure you eat healthy and drink lots. Like I said, have a walk in the sun. Things that are relaxing and good for your mental health as well as your physical health. But unfortunately, there's not really anything outside of the usual and the obvious you can do to increase your immunity. There are um, no shortcuts. It's, no, it's not really. Be healthy, as healthy as you can, the only, Like I said, the only thing that I can really advise is that people prioritize and in particular you know it's funny because you again you've got people that parent really differently and some people will go join a mother's group and have a new activity every day and you know have all these new friends that they're so excited to see and that's really great but 
it's also a time to say, oh, okay, today I'm really, really tired. We had an awful night last night. I want to see my friends. Maybe today I need to prioritize staying at home and having a rest. On the flip side, you've got your other people who have um, cabin fever and don't go out at all. And they, of course, need to make the opposite effort and go out and have a cup of coffee. Now we're actually getting into some more practical stuff. How important is your bed and your pillow in terms of sleep? Okay, so that really depends on the individual sort of thing. It's not important at all if you're someone who will quite happily drift off under a tree. You know, I think most of us probably aren't that. I think what's more important is comfort. Uh, Actually, it's often advised if you're going to nap, to nap on the couch or nap somewhere that's not your usual sleeping space so that, you know, when you're napping and it's shorter, again, it's a different association to bedtime and then it sort of doesn't disrupt your sleep architecture of the night as much as what it would if you had a really long nap in bed in the dark, etc. So, look, I certainly think that it's important that everyone's very comfortable when they go to sleep When I say comfortable, I mean also psychologically comfortable. You should feel safe, which means that, you know, your locks on your house should be secure, you know. So it's not just a matter of pillow and bed. It's just overall comfort. Mm -hmm. And that sort of leads into the next question, which is... And I might add temperature in there. Ah, temperature. What's the Mm -hmm. ideal temperature for sleep? I don't know it by the number. I know that my husband and I argue about it every night. <laughs> but uh, I think the cooler side of comfort is a good way to go because your core body temperature actually changes over your 24-hour period. It's dropping towards sleep time. And um, so, you know, being too hot when you go to bed doesn't help you fall asleep. Okay, the next question is about preparing for sleep. Should we be doing this in a more constructive way? For example, you know, winding down with a shower or mm-hmm. turning off screens an yeah. hour before. I'm glad you asked that question How actually. Because our generation of mothers is quite different to our mothers, for example, generation of mothers, in that we can be online 24-7, chatting to our friends, you know, are you up feeding? Oh yeah, I'm up feeding too. I've been here 25 minutes. How long have you been up? Etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And yeah, it's not very helpful for your sleep at all. Um, if you can, I think I think it's time to be realistic, maybe. Ideally, if you can turn off all screens an hour before you go to bed, that's great. But if we're going to be more realistic, I would say maybe half an hour before bed or just just something so that you're less online before bed than what you usually are. Definitely don't be looking at your phone throughout the night. Once the night started, the phone goes on airplane mode. End of story. Don't touch it again till morning. Even during marathon feeds? Look, I know the answer to this. Yes. Put it, no, you know what? I'll give you a I'll give you a more constructive answer. If you don't have any problems getting to sleep at night and instead you feel like you're isolated and alone and for you it's more important to feel supported, sure. Ch- chat with a friend. But if you're a person who is just going to scroll through Facebook, and think, oh, nothing interesting because everyone's asleep except me. You know, if you're going to just get hooked and go to bed and then think about those things, it's going to keep you up. No. Look, at the end of the day, the the short of it is it messes with your melatonin, which messes with your sleep. It also messes with your alertness. Yeah, the, the short of it is don't do it. Yeah. But The truth of the matter is everyone's going to do what they want anyway. So just cut back where you can and make those improvements where you can. 
yeah. I guess my my uh, perspective is that I'm a realist, and as much as giving lots of advice is really good. I think that everyone needs to look at their own situation and be like, okay, there's no chance I can turn my computer and my phone and my TV off at this time, but I probably can stop checking work emails or I probably can stop texting or I probably can, you know, so definitely stop where you feel you can. If you can do even more, that's better. Um, This isn't on our list of questions, but something that my partner and I experienced was that once our baby started sleeping through the night, we had to essentially sleep train ourselves because we couldn't sleep through the night. Yeah, I hear a lot of people having that experience, actually. It's, um, yeah, it's quite common. I think it's just, you know, adapting. You became accustomed to waking throughout the night. You're also more vigilant throughout the night. So, you know, before you had children, you know, you could probably have had a party going on next door and sleep through it. Whereas after you've had children, you wake to a tap dripping and you wake to the the slightest noise. And so starting to learn again that you don't have to wake up to all those noises, it's just reteaching your mind, really. And it just takes time. Yeah, basically. We're still in the process of doing that. I was going to say for some people, it can become insomnia. It can get worse. Um, But if you basically can just remind yourself that this is not something I need to be awake for and then try not to think too much in that wake period, you know, settle back to sleep, then then that's really good. But, yeah, basically the, the fact of the matter is when you're waking through the night and you've got a lot to think about and very little time to think about it during the day, it can all flood in at night and as much as possible try not to let it. Leora, can you train yourself to nap? Basically, as far as napping goes, it's funny. People tend to have like an identity when it comes to napping. They're either nappers or they're not nappers, you know. And um, it is one of those things. So I often, um, I'll often advise people to start napping during pregnancy purely so that they can practice napping before the baby comes and they're on their own schedule and they've got no difficulties no difficulties. I shouldn't say that. That's a ridiculous <laughs> thing to say. But they don't have those external disruptions. So if they can spend their pregnancy, you know, not napping daily or anything like that, but just occasionally, so that by the time the baby comes, instead of lying down and thinking to myself, oh, well, this is a huge waste of my time. Why am I bothering? They can lie down with that open mind of, oh, well, I've napped before. I might be able to actually get some sleep now. So, yeah, I actually think it's a it's a good thing to do if you're not someone who's used to napping. If you are tired, particularly in that first trimester when people get and the third trimester when people get really tired, give it a go. If you don't nap, what does it matter? You've wasted 20 minutes. Who cares? You've rested your body. Um, but it's a good time to start training yourself to be able to nap or at least identify as someone who can. That's actually really, really helpful. I had to teach myself to nap once I had the baby because I just wasn't a napper. Yeah, Couldn't yeah, fall asleep yeah. quickly. And, and, and obviously when you've got your that. baby, it's much harder because you're going, oh, my God, it's going to be awake in, you know, this many minutes, that many minutes, and I've got now even less minutes, you know. And fall asleep now. Fall asleep now. Ready, set, go. <laughs> and that pressure to sleep is just not helpful at all. Leora, thank you so much for coming. Pleasure. Here Thanks today. for having me. I really loved chatting to you. Me I too. Absolutely fascinating. So thank thank you. you so much. My pleasure. Thank you both. So that was Leora Kempler, sleep psychologist. Join us next week as we talk to Lynn McKenzie Hall all about boobs. <laughs>